John chapter 2, verses 1 to 12, page 887 in the Visitor's Bibles. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to his servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it had come from, though the servants who'd drawn the water out knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This was the first of his signs that Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed, abided there for a few days. Well, as a general policy, I wouldn't encourage idolatry at the start of a sermon, but if you were to design a made-up religion, what would you put as the big opening showpiece to demonstrate how truly glorious the God at its heart is? Perhaps he would arrive on the scene in a chariot of fire, hurling thunderbolts at the enemy. He'd have biceps like Thor and pecs like Hercules and the manicured eyebrows of Superman. And all of us would go weak at the knees, although perhaps for different reasons. Maybe if your understanding of religion comes more from the Hollywood take of Christianity, you'd imagine it slightly differently. God would reveal his glory through cold, hard, authoritarian power. He would come as a sort of tyrannical, miserable cleric sitting alone like Mr. Putin, all alone at the end of a long marble table. And immediately he would ban all sex and all music after midnight and confine all women to the kitchen forever. Is that what his glory looks like? The sort of cruel compliance you see in The Handmaid's Tale. Well, the good news is we don't have to imagine it for ourselves because John tells us that this event is how the true creator of the universe chose to first manifest his glory. Verse 11 tells us the point of the passage. John introduced his book, if you remember, by saying that the eternal God has come in the flesh and dwelt among human beings and his apostles, his witnesses, have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And verse 11 tells us that this is what that kind of glory looks like, the first sign. We're going to get seven of these signs in total, six in the first half of the book, all pointing towards the great final sign right at the end. 
And I'm willing to bet that none of our made-up gods first showed their glory by doing something as wonderfully fun and generous and friendly and warm as this. He is so far, isn't he, from that caricature of religious coldness. The first thing we read about Jesus is that he had a normal, wholesome, joyful social life. We see him in a party at a wedding, saving the party, in fact. And then at the end of the passage, verse 12, we see him abiding once again with his family and friends. A little verse just shoehorned into the story. It adds nothing. But it tells us once again that the focus of his witnesses, his apostles, is simply being with Jesus. They love to be around him. And I'm willing to bet that none of our made-up gods first showed their glory in such a low-key, hidden kind of way, so that only a handful of people ever even know that it's happened. Did you spot that? What an odd way to reveal yourself so that you save the day, but no one even notices. Well, there are two halves to the passage. It begins with a massive domestic crisis, and then Jesus intervenes. There's the sign itself, the miracle. But far more importantly, in the second half, there's the thing the sign is actually pointing to. What is it telling us about the true God of the Bible that his glory looks like this? So let's start in verses 1 to 5 with the crisis. And as so often in John's gospel, there's what is going on on the surface. And then there are all sorts of hints at a problem that goes much deeper. On the surface, we might call this the mystery of the missing bridegroom. This is a story of a young man who is completely inadequate. Now, a wedding is a big deal, isn't it, in every culture? In our culture, there are certain expectations on the groom. You've got to make a slightly gushing speech and praise the bridesmaids and get through the nightmarish first dance. But catering is basically someone else's problem. Even here, though, in our culture, when it goes wrong, it is very stressful, isn't it? So notice who's completely absent in this story. There's no bridezilla demanding to know why nobody's having fun at her party. And more to the point, there's no bridegroom trying to fix the problem. Maybe he's hiding from his wife behind the portaloos. But neither of them, bride or groom, are even named. The bridegroom never even speaks. All of John's focus is on Jesus, which is already revealing, because ultimately the groom was the one responsible for hospitality at a wedding. Look who gets called by the master of the feast as the story ends. This is the first major test of his new family, and he has failed it in a way that was shameful. And if you think a dry wedding would be a social disaster here in Scotland, well, the commentaries point out that in Israel, it could even become a legal matter. This man had obligations to meet. It was a sort of hospitality disaster that a bride's family might even sue over. Well, perhaps Jesus' mother was a family friend involved somehow in the planning, and as she sees the inevitable tears looming, she turns to someone that she knows instinctively she can trust. What she expects him to do about it is anyone's guess, but deep down, 
Mary knows that Jesus has the resources this bridegroom lacks. And so she speaks those four dreadful words, son, they have no wine. Zoom out a bit, though, and there are all sorts of allusions here to a deeper problem. This is more than a mere social faux pas. Somehow, this little wedding party in Cana seems to typify Israel as a whole. Right here in what should be the moment of deepest celebration and joy, everything runs dry and barren. Literally, the wine is lacking. It's exhausted, barren. The real crisis is a people starved of joy. Is this what was promised for God's people? Think of the Song of Songs, the great wedding and romance story of the Bible, where the wedding scene takes place in a promised land flowing with milk and honey and wine. How far has Israel fallen from what they hoped for? Here they are in dusty Cana, under the foot of Roman occupation, and the groom can't even manage a cheap carton of Aldi box wine. They have no wine are four words that are far more sad than they sound at first. There's a verse in the Talmud written after the temple was destroyed that says it all. There is no rejoicing save with wine. There is no rejoicing. I wonder when you last had a proper belly laugh, a real one. Some of us, it might feel a long time ago now. Maybe we can't even remember it. And it's not your fault. Our world can feel so desperately sad at times, can't it? Well, Jesus' reply to his mother is surprising. Whatever the tone is, he's putting distance between himself and her. He doesn't call her mother, just woman. I don't think it's rude. He'll use the same word at the end of this book as he hangs on the cross and thinks lovingly of her. There's something linking these two passages. It's the only other time that Mary is mentioned in this whole gospel, right at the end, and neither time does she get her name. Because I suspect, just like the party as a whole, she's also playing a bigger part here than just one woman. She is standing for faithful, hopeful Israel, waiting, whether she quite knows it or not, for what only the Messiah can bring. Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. What on earth does that mean? And why, if he thinks this isn't the time, does he go and do the miracle anyway? It's strange, isn't it? Well, the answer to that becomes clearer and clearer as we read on through this book. Jesus is going to talk about his hour, his time, again and again and again. There is a ticking clock that runs through the gospel. At first, like here, his hour is not yet. And then right at the heart of the book, chapter 12, something dramatic changes. Jesus does something very, very costly, something that will inevitably lead to his death. And he announces all of a sudden, the hour has come. And the clock continues to tick down all the way to the crucifixion and even beyond it into the resurrection and the hour of his apostles. 
And it's echoing a ticking clock that actually runs right the way through the Old Testament. And in particular, the prophets. The prophets like to talk about that day, the day of the Messiah, the day God's king comes to judge and to restore his people's joy. So I think what is happening here is that in a classically John-like way, Mary is asking for something far, far bigger than she realizes. Let me read you one of those passages in the prophets that talk about that day. This one is from Isaiah 25. We heard it already in our call to worship, verses 6 to 9. On this mountain, that is Jerusalem, not Cana, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. He will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Well, do you see then what Jesus is saying here to his mother? There will come a day, an hour, when I wipe away tears and I will give my joy-starved people a feast of rich food and well-aged wine, but woman, don't jump ahead. There will come a day for rejoicing, but not before I face the cross and deal with everything. Only I get to turn the pages of this book in obedience to my father. Only I get to set the clock ticking. Now is not the hour of my great feast, but how about I give you a little picture of it? That's all this is, this awesome, joy-filled miracle. It's just a little picture of what Jesus has really come to bring. Just like that table that we're going to gather around later on is another little sip. So it's not like Jesus says no here, but Mary twists his arm. The point is that nobody twists his arm. She and he are just talking on entirely different levels. She knows that he cares. She knows he's going to help somehow. And isn't verse 5 hilarious? Even after that gentle rebuke, you can almost hear the maternal eyes rolling. She turns to the servants and says, do whatever he tells you. And that, by the way, is word for word what Pharaoh said about Joseph. The Savior God sent him in the face of another great famine. So verses 1 to 5, Jesus' first sign comes in the middle of a crisis. Those tears Isaiah spoke about have not yet been wiped away. They're being shed right now all over Ukraine, aren't they? Real stinging tears from people with nothing left inside. The joy gone. And it's into that world of weeping that Jesus brings this little taste of wine. A people starved of joy, and where is the bridegroom? Well, verses 6 to 12, 
follow the sign. Follow the sign and you'll find him because rich rejoicing waits for the bridegroom's hour. And the mistake we could make here is to give all of our focus to the miracle itself. We could speculate about why it's six jars of water and how the miracle worked and whether we should expect stuff like this in church today. Should we be working miracles in our weddings? But the thing that misses is that John almost passes over the miracle itself completely. There's no spectacle. We're not even told when it happens. Just that, by the way, verse 9, it already had. Jesus doesn't wave his hands over the water jars. He doesn't even pray. The creator of the universe just wills the water to change, and it's changed. Augustine said it's the sort of miracle that in one sense isn't miraculous at all because the one who made the very best wine ever drunk instantaneously in those water pots is the very same creator who makes wine year in and year out through ordinary grapevines. I've got one lovable but snobby friend who gave me a terrible time once for serving some cheap Chilean Merlot. Oh, don't you know those are just aged in industrial steel vats, that stuff. There's no real taste. Well, here the creator God crams all the complex flavors, the vanillas and the tannins and whatever else you might want from a decade of sitting in the finest French oak barrels. He crams it into this water in the blink of an eye. But John doesn't talk about it as a spectacle, does he? Or a wonder. Look at John's word. It's a sign, something that's meant to point beyond itself. So the sign itself comes in verses six to eight, and because it's a signpost, the details it does give are quite specific. First, there's the obvious thing. This is a lot of water. If my math is right, that is roughly 680 liters or 510 bottles of wine. I don't know how many we ordered for our wedding, but it was a lot less than that. This is quite a lavish party Jesus is putting on. And no, by the way, this is not unfermented grape juice, not only because that is too silly to argue with, but because the master of the feast explicitly talks about drunkenness. And he's a man who knows what happens at weddings. Of course, Jesus does not approve of drunkenness. The Bible makes that clear in other places using exactly the same word as verse 10. Because drunkenness hurts people. It ruins happiness. But wine itself is a gift of God that's meant to bring joy. It gladdens the heart, says the Psalms. And Jesus gladdens them a lot here. But there's more detail in the sign, isn't it? It's lavish. But why does John bother to tell us where the water comes from? Surely water is water. Well, no, not in first century Israel. This water, verse 6, was set aside for a very particular, very special use, the Jewish rites of purification, and then Jesus goes and nicks it. And that might be an incidental detail until you notice that John brings up water and cleansing in every single chapter of this book from chapter 1 through to chapter 7. We've had it once already, haven't we? John baptized with water. It was a picture of cleansing. 
But Jesus brings the reality. Jewish religion was obsessed with getting clean. And so standing by at a wedding like this are gallons and gallons of water on tap, ready for washing with. You would ceremonially wash your unclean hands before you ate. If you're a Pharisee, you'd wash out your plate and your bowl for good measure. At some point, if you read Leviticus, the bride and groom might have to wash themselves as the marriage is consummated in case their own sexual sin ruins this precious new relationship. Gallons and gallons and gallons of water. But it's not enough, is it, to take away the sins of the world? All of it just pointed forwards to the hour when the Lamb of God would come and do it for real. And only then will we truly be able to rest and rejoice. Notice the language of verse 7. Those jars of Jewish religion are filled to the brim. And then it all overflows into Jesus' gift of wine. All the grace pictured in the Old Testament filled full in Jesus. Endless, watery washing replaced with something as potent as wine. With real, realized rejoicing. If Jesus is going to wipe away every tear and bring real and lasting joy, then first, the hour has to come when he deals with sin forever. And until then, you aren't meant to force endless belly laughs out of this life. It's okay if sometimes it's hard to rejoice. We need the joy bringer. I wonder if you picked up on that other little detail at the start of the passage. When does all this happen? Well, the maths is a little bit vague, but however you cut it, we're at the end of week one of Jesus' ministry. Until now, John has been numbering the days with every incident, almost as if he's giving us a new week of creation. And at the end, around the Sabbath, we get a wedding feast. But instead of making that explicit, John calls this the third day, three days after the last event. Is that one more little hint, though, that all of this will have to wait for the third day, for the cross and resurrection? The wedding we're really talking about here is the wedding at the end of time. There's only one other place in this book where John talks about a resurrection happening on the third day, and it's the very next story, verse 19. So the sign itself here shows us Jesus acting out everything he's come to do. Washing replaced with wine. And then verses 9 to 11 show us the glory of the one it all points towards. What is this telling us about Jesus? It's telling us that he is the true bridegroom, the true bringer of joy. It's a wonderful scene, isn't it, next? We get a kind of blind taste test where the expert judge is given a bottle of Aldi Plonk right next to a bottle of 1982 Bordeaux, and without the labels, he can't tell them apart. In an instant, Jesus has made 510 bottles of Isaiah's well-aged wine. 
And the master of the feast not only approves it, he is shocked by the generosity. But who gets the credit? Well, Jesus makes sure it all goes to that hopeless bridegroom. What sort of host brings out the most generous, expensive wine when half the guests are too sloshed to even know what they're drinking? Well done, you. And only the servants and the disciples know the full story. So not only does Jesus save the day, but he does it in the most loving and generous way possible, keeping all the attention on the bride and groom. And you see what it's telling us about him. It's not just that he's generous and fun and full of divine creative power. Yes, he's all that. But he comes like that and stands in the place of this poor, inadequate bridegroom. John makes that explicit in chapter 3. John the witness will speak for one last time and he'll tell us that the bridegroom is here at last. And so John can fade away into obscurity because his joy is complete with all the attention on Jesus. In fact, we're going to hear wedding bells quite a few times ringing through this book. Time and again, the prophets promised a great big banquet when the day of the Messiah came, and time and again, they painted God as the bridegroom, the loving husband. And John is saying, he's here. Jesus is both. In chapter one, he introduced Jesus as the lamb. In chapter two, he plays the part of the bridegroom. And when John has the privilege of closing the whole Bible in the book of Revelation. He puts them together, doesn't he? After the cross and the resurrection comes the wedding feast of the Lamb, when everyone that he has washed clean is invited to rejoice. If there's a smile ever on our faces today, and I hope sometimes there is, It's the smile my kids get on their faces when an invitation to a party comes through the door. It's not that we have nothing now. We've got a wonderful invitation. But it's to something Jesus is doing for us in the future. And he guaranteed at the cross how deeply glorious is Jesus Christ. That is John's message. He is God's very, very best, grace upon grace, saved until last. What a privilege it is then to live in this age where God has given the most precious thing heaven held. A God who chooses to manifest his glory before anything else by meeting the desperate need of a joy-starved world. So we're going to meet around his table in a few minutes. And I'm afraid the wine will not be anywhere near as rich and potent as his because we still live in an imperfect world. We are stuck with unfermented grape juice. But it's only meant to be a taste because we're saved in hope, aren't we? And so around the table, we enjoy the invitation together. It puts a smile on our face, just like when it comes through the door for the kids. We look back at the cross, and those watery washings of the Old Testament are fully realized now, and we enjoy it together. We're washed clean forever by the blood of the Lamb, but there is still a not yet. 
about our Christian lives. There's still an hour to come. Sometimes the Christian life is going to suck. Sometimes there are going to be tears. Turn on the news and you will see a joy-starved world right now in all its ugly horror. And when you come to church, it doesn't all go away. Today we get a little glass of Prosecco, like when you arrive at the wedding, but the massive magnum of Burgundy, that is still waiting for the feast itself. But this is a promise. A promise that our king is the great swallower of death. A promise that he is the great wiper away of tears. And he won't do it with a hanky. He will do it by putting a massive, great, big smile on every face. It will be lavishly generous. In Jesus' kingdom, there will be no meters, no measures, no shortage of love or friendship or intimacy or joy, no penny-pinching. None of those awful showers where you have to keep pressing the button every 10 seconds to get some warm water. Those will be the first thing to go because that is not how Jesus does things. In his kingdom, the joy will never run dry. With this one little sign then, this one picture, he set the clock ticking. And verse 11, the more his disciples saw, the more they believed. And John wants his readers to have the same thing. However much you've seen already in Christ, there is always more comfort and joy and hope to drink in. So while we wait in hope, let's glory in the goodness of Jesus, the bringer of joy. Let's bow our heads. Lord Jesus Christ, help us, we pray, to rejoice in how deeply gracious and kind and glorious you are. Thank you that you came into this world of weeping and sorrow and that at the cross you washed your people clean to make us fit for the day of wine. Lord, there is such a famine, a real famine of true hope and true joy in the world we see now. So come quickly, we pray, loving Savior, and bring comfort to every broken heart and put a smile on every face at the sight of our glorious bridegroom. Amen.